Section 11 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in July 2017. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Theft. Continued. So far, we have only considered watchers employed in cases of burglary or sneak thefts, that is, secret introductions into houses. We shall now say something about those met with in other branches of the profession. Besides their role of watcher, they have often another mission as well, namely to screen and divert attention from the actual thief, in short, to facilitate him in his work by all the means in their power. Let us here repeat that there is no graver error than to try, while in the midst of difficult investigations, to reach one's goal right off and immediately lay hold of the criminal. One rarely succeeds at the start, and it is generally by a detour that we obtain our first results, which then enable us to march straight ahead. No doubt this depends on the manner in which the theft is committed. The actual thief tries to remain as little in the foreground as possible, while the assistants and watchers can and ought often to expose themselves for his sake. Hence we question the victim of a pickpocket to try and find whether he has not noticed any individual brushing against him in a peculiar way, or touching him, or whose general bearing has been suspicious. The answers to our questions are generally negative, and, if we are contented with these first answers, we have hardly any chance of laying hands on the pickpocket. The attention of the victim must therefore be directed towards all persons who have been strolling near him, have accosted him, asked for some information, requested a light for a cigar, or who have rendered him any kind of service. These confederates may have drawn the victim's attention to some object or other, such as one of the beauties of nature, a rainbow or sunset, or a remarkable picture in a gallery, or perhaps some comical or dangerous situation in which third parties are mixed up. They may have seized him all of a sudden and drawn him to one side to prevent him from being run over by a carriage or overturned by a man with a bundle. If dirty, they may have sympathetically brushed him down. They have asked him whether he has not lost his handkerchief or something else, has not taken someone else's umbrella by mistake or forgotten his stick. All such questions are put with the object of assisting the thief to touch and examine the person questioned, or else cause the latter to examine his own person, thus drawing his attention to that part of his body touched and rendering him incapable of feeling any other contact effected soon after. This requires some explanation. The human body has a general sensibility, and a sensation already localized is easily confounded with another analogous sensation effected on another part of the body, though, as a sensation, the latter has hardly any independent existence. Presuming this second sensation is not vigorous enough to annihilate the effect of the first. This psychophysiological peculiarity, besides being remarkable in itself, 
will explain more than one case of pocket-picking which might otherwise appear impossible. These statements may be proved by an experiment which requires certain preparations. Two persons A and B plot to carry out the following on a third party, X. A all of a sudden gives X a blow with the elbow on X's right side, excusing it by making some such explanation as, look, stop, etc. Soon after, B will in his turn give X a blow with his elbow, but on X's right side and with less force than A. The most difficult part of the experiment is to discover the exact moment when B should strike. He will strike too soon if X's attention is not sufficiently fixed on the point indicated by the blow and cry of A, and he will strike too late if X has had time to recover from the blow and cry of A. To strike with profit, B must seize the exact moment when the sensation caused by A has reached its culmination. If the experiment is successfully carried out, X, when questioned as to what he has felt, will be sure to answer that he felt the blow and heard the cry of A, and that he immediately afterwards felt a new sensation of that blow, but harder or more prolonged. As to the blow given by B, he has not noticed it as such. The effect of the blow given by B does not therefore produce an independent effect, but becomes added to the effect of the blow given by A, although the former was given on the left side and the latter on the right side of the body. In practice, the experiment is verified by the following example. One afternoon, a gentleman had his inside coat and his overcoat slit open and his pocket-book containing a large sum abstracted from the breast-pocket of the former. He had not felt the slightest contact, and yet, to make the slit, which was in the shape of a cross, the operator, however skilful and circumspect he might have been, must have exercised fairly considerable pressure. Moreover, to get the pocket-book out, it must have been pulled with some force, for the slit was not sufficiently large to enable the pocket-book to drop out of itself. Added to this, that the gentleman had noticed nothing extraordinary, had been in no crowd, nor been run up against or elbowed about, in short, nothing suspicious whatever had happened to him. At last, after many questions, he began impatiently to remark that he had seen something, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the theft in question. He then stated that an old gentleman, exceedingly well-dressed, who happened to be following him, had remarked to him with the utmost politeness that he had stepped in some filth. The old gentleman added that he had been following him for a considerable time, and had noticed an unsupportable odour, and this would be very disagreeable if our victim intended to pay any visit. The letter thanked the old gentleman and stopped to look at the sole of one of his shoes. Then, finding nothing, he raised the other leg to examine his other shoe. At this moment the old gentleman seized him firmly by the arm and exclaimed laughingly, It is not easy to stand on one leg. You were nearly over just now. But I see you have nothing on that boot either. It must have been myself who has stepped in something, and I have been laying it on your back, or rather, under your feet." The old gentleman laughed most heartily at this amusing episode, and that very evening was arrested as an accomplice of the pickpocket. 
It was proved later on that the real thief had in slitting up the coat naturally taken advantage of the moment when the old gentleman had seized his victim by the arm on the pretense of preventing him from losing his balance and falling. The procedure of the pickpocket's accomplice depends on the circumstances under which he operates, and what chiefly characterizes pocket-picking is that it is always, or nearly always, committed with the aid of a comrade. It is best to admit that a pickpocket rarely steals by himself. In most cases he is seconded by one or more helpers, either men or women. The railway thief has nearly always a woman with him. In Europe, if he be a high-class operator, he travels first class and in express trains, or he may appear to be a respectable old countryman who travels third or fourth class with the country folk. In both cases he will generally be accompanied by a woman who will occupy the victim with her looks, talks, or something even still more intimate. The procedure is nearly always the same. The most difficult part is the choice of a victim. The latter ought to be well-to-do, not too intelligent and not insensible to a bit of fun. The pocket-book must be a fat one, and visible in the left inside pocket, and with respect to this every pickpocket who wishes to live by his trade possesses an excellent eye. It is a mistake to suppose the railway thief only travels at night. All detectives are aware that these kinds of theft take place as often by day as by night, for an expert pickpocket is not afraid of the light, and he knows that travellers look after their valuables more carefully at night than in the daytime. It goes without saying that the thief and the woman who goes with him do not appear to know one another. One of them gets into the carriage first and looks about for the information mentioned above. If there is nothing tempting, he gets out again, but if business can be done, he makes a sign to the accomplice to follow. It is generally the man who gets in first, for it is easier for him to do the necessary exploring, to walk on the platform, look into the carriages, and get in and out of them if necessary. In the daytime they will do their best to be alone in the carriage with their victim. At night, on the other hand, a number of passengers does not worry them, for railway carriages are generally badly lit, and the thieves trust to most of the passengers dropping off to sleep. As to the order in which the travellers sit, the real thief must at any price be beside the victim, and the confederate who has to occupy the victim's attention must be opposite him. The thief takes part in the conversation for some time, and then drops off to sleep, but he takes care to lose sight of nothing that is going on. He nearly always has a sham hand on the side next his victim. This false hand is joined to the real hand on the other side, and rests upon the knees, while the real working hand is hidden under the large folds of his cape or cloak, and is ready to thrust out at the side at any moment. When the victim is engaged in animated conversation with his vis-à-vis, -vis, the true hand of the thief begins to move. If this movement is awkward and is perceived by the victim, he is soon reassured on seeing the clasped hands of his neighbour, who is beginning to snore. The theft once committed, one of the two gets out at the next station, and the one who gets out first is always the person carrying the purse or pocket-book. This is hardly ever the thief himself, 
for the latter endeavours as soon as the theft is completed to skilfully pass the pocket-book to his confederate, who, of course, is quite harmless in everyone's eyes. Indeed, if the theft is discovered before the pickpockets have got away, the actual thief willingly allows himself to be searched, and his confederate is exempt from any suspicion. For how can people who are seated face to face and talking steal from one another? As a rule, the second cut-purse gets out at the same station, and nearly always under the pretext that the first has forgotten something which ought certainly to be given him. Naturally, the train starts before he comes back. When dealing with one of these railway carriage thefts, the following points should be borne in mind, especially during the examination of the person robbed and the witnesses. As a rule, the former makes no mention of the thief's helper, unless the helper was a man. When the helper was a woman, she is never mentioned. Either he does not like to talk about a woman whose acquaintance he has struck up in a railway carriage, or he does not think it worth mentioning, as she did not know the person suspected, or appeared to be so natural, or she was so well-bred that it is quite impossible to suspect her of the theft. Another way to recognize these people is that one of the two never tells his destination, for indeed he cannot get out before the theft has been committed. It is more often the actual thief who says where he is bound for, generally a fairly long journey, for he only follows the companion to whom he has passed the spoil under the excuse of giving him something he has forgotten. When the fact of the theft has been promptly discovered, it is often possible to catch the thieves by keeping watch at the two neighbouring stations, on each side of that at which they have got out. They never entrain again at the same place, but go on foot to the nearest station up or down the line, whence they take a train back again, or perhaps in the same direction as formerly, in order to make use of the rest of their tickets. Mr. Malali gives an interesting account of the methods of train gangs in India. He states, The railways are their most lucrative fields of work, and each gang has its particular beat. They seldom encroach on the hunting ground of others of their fraternity. Starting in a gang of four or five, accompanied by women and boys, they occupy separate compartments, some disguised as traders, others as wandering minstrels, and the women, as eminently respectable travellers, occupy the compartments reserved for their sex. Adepts in the art of entertaining their fellow travellers, they soon learn for what purpose they are journeying, and when the unsuspecting traveller falls asleep, his jewels and valuables are taken. The Alagiri leaves the train at the next station, and the gang unites at a place previously agreed upon, where the loot is divided share and share alike, with two portions for the successful thief. Night trains are usually selected, and they are always to be found in special trains running for the convenience of pilgrims and other attending festivals, when women are always decked out in jewels. An instance of their cleverness may be quoted from the writer's experience. A busy junction at night where changing of trains is necessary. Two unsuspecting women are travelling and much distressed at the confusion. A respectable native gentleman proffers his assistance, which is gladly accepted. He finds a compartment for the women and helps them in with their goods and chattels, 
and asks permission to accompany them. This is accorded, and he amuses the travellers with anecdotes. The elder of the women is the custodian of the jewels. She is therefore warned that the safest place for her to keep the bag containing the valuables is under her head when she sleeps. This is unsuspectingly done, and in the morning when the women awake they find the bag ripped open and the contents gone. Their civil friend, needless to say, has also gone. He was afterwards arrested disguised as a travelling musician, and told the writer that for seven years he had been carrying on this lucrative trade. A mass of interesting and instructive information as to these ubiquitous criminals will be found in the little book on Railway Thieves by Inspector M. Paupu Rao Naidu, Madras Railway Police. We here quote a passage describing the methods of the Bamptas. This tribe, apparently originating from the Deccan, is spread all over India, so that Bamta has become a common name for the thief in general, just like Kapemari in Madras. The author says, Each batch of men go to a station dressed in some sort of disguise or in good ordinary clothes, taking a canvas or carpet bag, or at least a bundle with them, and purchase tickets for some place far or near. In their bag or bundle they invariably have one or two coloured turbans, two or three coats, a knife, a pair of scissors, a mirror, a chisel about six inches long and half an inch broad, a long tin case of chunam, viputi, namam and srichurnam to put on different marks on their foreheads, a string of beads and a few old cloths. They also carry trinkets such as rings, bangles, buttons, nose-rings, etc., of very trifling value, which their females expose for sale on roadsides to show ostensibly to the public that it is their means of livelihood. They will make the other passengers understand that they are on a pilgrimage to Rameshwaram, Tirupati, Hamti, Jagnandam, Kazi, Haridwar, or any other religious place on the railway line in which they fix their game. They look out for passengers also having bags which seem likely to contain anything valuable, and they follow such persons into the same carriage, and, sitting near, endeavour to enter into conversation, and ask them where they are going and at what station they intend alighting. After a time when it begins to get dark, or if it is already dark, the other passengers begin to drop off to sleep. Then one of the Bamptas, on the pretext of making them more comfortable, lies down on the floor and covers himself with a large cloth under the pretense of going to sleep, while his confederate, stretching his legs on to the opposite seat, spreads out his cloth, thus more or less screening the man lying beneath. This latter, when all appears quiet, begins manipulating the bag he has spotted under the seat, to feel with his hands if anything valuable is there, and, if he cannot succeed in getting his hand into the bag, he takes from his mouth a small curved knife, which all Bamptas carry concealed between their gum and upper lip, and with that he rips the seams of the bag and takes out what he finds. If the curved knife is not sharp enough to cut the strong canvas, he uses the other knife he has with him, and if the article spotted be a tin or wooden box, he makes use of the chisel in forcing it open, generally at the lock, 
and transfers the contents to his bag or bundle, or passes up what he had stolen to his confederate, and, at the next station, the two get out of the carriage and either leave the train altogether or get into another carriage. Should there be any complaint of loss, they throw away the things out of the window. They note carefully where the property has been thrown out, and, leaving the train at the next station, they go back on foot along the line, pick up the booty, and make off with it across country. Train thieves carry little or no luggage. In the first place they have no need for any, and then their movements are freer when looking for their carriage, changing their compartment or place, and getting in and out of the train, etc. If the victim has some little acquaintance with, and is a good observer of mankind and things, he will not have much trouble in noticing that these people seem suspicious. If they are in a carriage with country people, they give themselves the airs of decent peasants, but their hands are in no way spoiled by work, their shoes are not those generally used in the country, and their knowledge as regards agriculture seems to be at a fault. If they have set up to be extremely elegant, it is still more easy to unmask them, for there is always one place where their elegance is threadbare. Everything which comes first before the eyes is of course irreproachable, overcoat, waistcoat, watch-chain, cuffs, tie, etc. But the shirt, which is almost entirely hidden and only appears by chance, is of a doubtful whiteness. The stockings which have come into view of a sudden leave something to be desired. It is the same with the boots, and what the clothes do not betray, the hands tell. No doubt, a person who can observe well enough to draw such conclusions has not much need of an investigating officer, and the latter cannot teach him very much. The only useful thing to be done is for the intelligent investigating officer to question the intelligent observer with precision, so that the latter will communicate those observations which, without the questions of the former, he might omit to mention. A curious role is that of the confederate of the thief who sneaks into the rooms of hotels when the traveller is asleep or absent. If the thief be caught in the act, he asks a skilful question in order to be taken for a person who has come there on business or has been summoned for some good reason or other. Perhaps he is a hairdresser, a cobbler, a chiropodist, or it may be a dressmaker, midwife, etc. Now, if the individual who has come across the thief seems satisfied by the question or representation, the latter goes off slowly and with excuses. But if he persists in his suspicions, speaks boldly, and so on, the confederate cries out suddenly in the corridor, Hello, there! It is not there you ought to go, but to room number so-and-so. When a theft is not to be committed at hazard, but from a determinate individual who, it is known in advance, intends to stop in such and such an hotel, the confederate of the thief will also take up his lodgings in the same hotel, and, if possible, on the same landing. He will then not only be in a position to find out all necessary information, but also, if need be, to effectively help the thief in some such manner as we have indicated. The role of the confederate of a pickpocket is very difficult when the latter operates in the street and the bazaars. He must know how to gather together a crowd, by drawing the attention of people to some object or other, 
or in offering himself as an object of curiosity for the passers-by. He will pretend to be ill, to have a fit of epilepsy, to be drunk, to be an idiot or a madman. He will pretend to have been the victim of a sudden theft, or he will trump up a quarrel with someone. When the crowd has been got together, it is easy to commit the theft, or at all events easier than in ordinary circumstances. At the same time, the confederate will lure the individual whom they have decided to rob by relating or showing or giving him something, or by warning him of some danger. If the thief has to beware of the watchfulness of third persons, of public officials, companions of the victim, or even the general public, the confederate will have to be his screen, that is to say, he will have to divert the attention of such persons, or put himself in such evidence as will effectually cover the operations of the thief. As regards this, the auxiliaries of the thief are at times capable of master-strokes. They seem to have the power to, as it were, double themselves, or at least make themselves appear to be twice as big as they really are. An amazing and pathetic story was recently told to a London magistrate. A decently dressed man, describing himself as a tailor, was charged with attempting to pick pockets. The detective said that the prisoner had been seen leading a blind girl about fourteen years old from the pavement towards an electric tram car, around which there was a crowd of people. The prisoner was seen to tap the dress pockets of two ladies, and then return with the girl to the pavement. He kept the man and the girl under observation for about half an hour, during which he saw them mingle amongst the crowd around a dozen or more tram cars. At last, as an elderly lady went towards a car, the prisoner ran after her, pulling the blind girl with him. Partly under cover of the girl, he lifted up the lady's cloak and put his hands in her pocket, but, looking behind him and seeing the sergeant, pushed the blind girl into the tram-car and jumped in after her. The officer followed and arrested them. The prisoner protested that he was a respectable man. But at the station the girl said that she knew her brother to be a pickpocket, adding that she did not know what he was doing that evening. Two skeleton keys were found upon him. The confederate must be particularly skilled in receiving the stolen article. There are naturally a thousand different processes. The article stolen passes from the hands of one into the hands of the other, either quite simply or with a skill allied to conjuring or the confederate, following a settled plan, rubs up against the thief who thrusts the stolen articles into his pocket, or the thief drops the article to the ground, or, better still, lets it glide down beside his body when it is nimbly picked up by the confederate. In this respect, the Hungarian pickpockets are astonishingly skilful. They go over the frontier to visit a market commit their thefts, and return back quietly into their own country, laden with booty. One of these thieves used to wear at the end of his shoe a short pointed needle, which he thrust rapidly into the pocket-book let fall by his colleague, and then, bending his knee, he would raise up his leg underneath his long cloak, and cleverly seize the pocket-book with his hand. A woman was skilful enough to withdraw at the right moment her foot from her shoe and seize the pocket-book with her bare toes. Then she would lift up her foot under her dress and, with a skill which would have done credit to a circus, 
dropped a pocket-book into a bag attached low down in the inside of her under-petticoat. Then she again thrust her foot into her shoe, the whole business being executed without the slightest help from the hands. Still cleverer was a young girl who wore stockings with the ends cut off, to enable her toes, which were as mobile as fingers, to protrude. She used to skilfully seize the pocket-book slipped down through his or her clothes by the real thief, and would then fold her leg, raising her foot so as to place the pocket-book between her thighs, where she held it by a strong pressure, which did not, however, prevent her from walking rapidly and without effort. She only came to a standstill on finding a favourable opportunity of withdrawing the pocket-book from its hiding-place. For a long time the actual thief, a female, had been observed and suspected in the markets and arrested on more than one occasion. But there was no proof against her, no stolen articles being found in her possession. She used to arrive at the market from one side while her companion came from another, and when the woman was seized, the young girl, whom no one suspected, was already far away with the booty. The latter was only arrested thanks to a clever police constable who had often seen the woman in the market and set himself to watch the persons constantly close to her. He noticed that the girl, while generally remaining some distance away, never lost sight of her, and even went up to her at a pre-arranged signal. Finally, he succeeded in observing a stolen purse slipped on to the ground by the woman, which was immediately picked up by the girl in the manner described. The task of the auxiliary of a shop-thief is quite analogous to that of his comrade, the pickpocket's assistant. Thefts in shops and similar places, such as open bazaars and markets, etc., are much rarer nowadays than formerly. The number of thefts in markets has probably diminished because the owners of stalls and shops keep better watch, and there are more police about than in the old days. As regards shops, there are generally more employees than formerly, which helps the watching of customers. When all the attendants in a well-frequented shop consisted of the master and an apprentice, they had too much to do serving their customers to be able to keep a lookout for thieves. The introduction of cashier's desks has also contributed to make the life of the shop thief a hard one. The desk is usually placed at the back of the shop and a little on one side so that the thief must turn his back to the cashier when facing the server and is consequently always in fear of being observed from behind. In shops containing such desks there are far fewer complaints of theft, but when they do take place the thief is always accompanied by his confederate to distract the attention of the cashier, screen the theft, and take charge of the stolen articles. The most frequent and most important thefts are those committed in jewellers' shops. There are always two thieves, one coming in a little later than the other. It can be easily understood how the shopkeeper, alone in the shop with a customer difficult to please, loses his head when he sees a second customer come in, who appears to be impatient and seems as if he would make good purchases. One sees a jeweller, who is not perfectly at home in his business, and hardly a man of routine, become quite nervous in such a case. He runs from one customer to the other, then back again to the first, bangs his boxes and cases about, pushing them here and there, and does everything rather than properly guard his valuables. 
it goes without saying that the first customer has taken care, before the arrival of the second, to mix up the articles, taking them out of their boxes and cases, placing them in a heap, and, in short, doing everything to prevent their being efficaciously watched. Then, when the second is already very impatient, he ends by selecting his jewels and has them addressed to his hotel, where naturally he will pay for them on delivery. At the same time, he does not forget to steal all he can. Hardly is he outside when the second customer starts his work, that is to say, he keeps the jeweller out of breath so as to give him no time to immediately check and arrange his jewels, and so discover whether he has lost anything and what. If need be, a third arrives while the second is still in the shop, and during all this time the thief gets the stolen articles safely away. Time-worn methods of thefts from jewellers are well enough known. How a sickly, cuffing purchaser drops his handkerchief on the jewels displayed in order to remove one. How another lays a visiting card with sticky stuff on the back upon a diamond. How a lady throws into the hat of a beggar who comes into the shop a coin, and with it some stolen rings. How Mr. T buys, the salesman or commissionaire accompanies him to the door of his house, and has the door shut in his face. These are things that are always to be read in the newspapers. How many thefts of jewels are effected is illustrated by a story which Griffiths heard at a great London jeweller's shop. He had, partly for amusement, a large brilliant lying apparently free, but in reality protected by an unbreakable, immovable and practically invisible glass plate. The jeweller assured Griffiths that it was incredible how many attempts were made to remove this jewel lying about, and often in the most wily manner. A much favoured method is for the thief to appear in a shop and place a lump of wax or some sticky stuff underneath the projecting glass countercases. He then asks to see many things, fixes his attention on something small but very valuable, catches it at the right moment and places it on the wax, which cannot be seen from any part of the shop. If the shopman misses the jewel, the thief allows himself to be searched. If followed in the street, he is quite sure that it is not on him. A few days later, an accomplice comes to the shop and takes the ring or other valuable away, unnoticed and without danger. The first thing to be done is to throw light on the concomitant circumstances of this category of thefts. It often happens that the victim of the theft has absolutely no idea which of the customers has robbed him. Before their arrival his stock was intact, and after their departure many things were missing. In such case the fault is often committed of suspecting all but believing that only one is guilty. Hesitation and uncertainty is the result. Suspicion is thrown upon all, but only one can be arrested. Another idea, equally bad, is to allow the victim to nominate one of the two or three customers as the presumed thief, because he seemed perhaps to be more awkward, or because he was not so well dressed, or because he discovered the loss of a jewel after his departure, and to be led into the mistake of tracking that person alone, though he has already got clear away, or at all events is no longer in possessions of the stolen article. In such cases the important thing is always to find out what has taken place before and after the theft. 
when the victim has related the story of what he believes he has seen and has suspicions as regards some particular person the investigating officer is often contented with taking the exact description of that person and noticing the reason for which he has been suspected while the essential thing is to find out from the victim who was in the shop before the suspected individual what he did and what was his mean then who came in after the suspected individual or at the same time in this way a faithful picture of the whole case will be obtained and precise information regarding the way the theft has been carried out and persons of whose participation in the theft there can be no doubt end of section 11